0: Welcome to The R Word. We're here to talk about reparations in the church in Northwest Arkansas. I'm joined again by my friend and co-host Dustin McGowan. What's up? To discuss an interview I recorded with Dr. William A. Darity. Now let's listen to the interview. William Sandy Darity is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics and the director of the Samuel DuBois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. His most recent book, co-authored with Kirsten Mullen, is From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. He has published or edited 13 books and more than 300 articles. Dr. Darity lives with his family in Durham, North Carolina, where he plays blues harmonica, coaches youth sports, and enjoys reading science fiction. So Dr. Darity, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so happy that we were able to interview you today. So uh, first, Dr. Darity, can you share some of your story with us? Who who are you and why are you here today?
1: Well, so let let me make a mild correction on my name, which uh, at birth, I was named William Alexander Darity Jr. And my mother did not want me to be called Little Bill, like my father's nickname was Bill. And so she nicknamed me Sandy. Somehow she extracted that from Alexander. And so I've been Sandy ever since I was a small child. But uh, but but that's that's my nickname. It's not my actual name. So uh, just just a, a a very very small correction there. Uh, who am I? Well, I, I'm the son of two black Southerners who. Uh, were the first generation members of their respective families uh, to go to college. So I had the uh, serendipitous fortune of being uh, the son of two highly educated individuals, uh, even though my grandparents, um, both on each side, were not, not as well educated as their, as their, uh, as their children. Uh, and that meant that I had a set of opportunities that I think uh, were a bit unique, not not entirely unique, but were a bit unique in that generation. My father worked for the World Health Organization, so we lived in, uh, in, in, uh, in Lebanon and in Egypt for the first eight years of my life. Uh, my sister actually was born in Lebanon. Uh, but because uh, I came from a family with Southern roots, and that is uh, a family where uh, I grew up eating grits, and you you never put sugar on your grits in my family. Uh, because of that, uh, I had uh, the opportunity to develop a particular perspective about, about the world and about the United States that was linked to uh, the history of legal segregation in our country. And... Uh, and, and the recognition of inequalities in other, other places across the globe. So I, I think that helped form or shape the kind of work that I've done throughout the course of my life. Uh, if we're talking specifically about the work that Kirsten Mullen and I have done on reparations, uh, the starting point for me with that was uh, the request that I received from an economist named Richard America uh, in 1989 or so to write the introduction for a volume that he was editing, which uh, subsequently was called The Wealth of Races. And it was a collection of essays that he had assembled by economists who were attempting to measure the size of uh, of a reparations bill. and. so they were they were assigning monetary values to uh, what we might refer to as atrocities or, or oppression, and uh, as a consequence, uh, I was pulled into the reparations web because at the point where uh, Richard asked me to to write this essay, this introductory essay, I was a reparations skeptic. Uh, my view was that reparations certainly was an ethical ethical objective but that it was something that would never actually happen and so there wasn't any point in trying to uh put out a volume on on how you how you would cost it out um but richard insisted that i write the essay and he said that i had complete discretion over what i would say so i started reading the essays to prepare my introduction and uh in the process I became absolutely convinced that this was so much the right thing to do, that even if the odds were extremely long, it was something I should work for. And so when uh, uh, when I had an opportunity to, uh, to develop a book project on reparations, uh, after an editor at the University of North Carolina Press heard me give a presentation, um, I had already been collaborating with Kirsten Mullen on a couple of essays, editorial essays on the topic. And so uh, so I asked her if she would work with me on the book. And uh, it took us about a decade, but the book was published in 2020. And now uh, it is uh, available in a second edition paperback with a new preface that we wrote following the events of the year 2020. So um, that's that's the story uh, of my trajectory. And, uh, I you know, I hope I can continue to contribute to this mission. Yes, sir.
0: Well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, what does your family put on their grits
1: Oh, it's got to be gravy, or, or you eat it with uh, the leftover meat from last night, or you fry some fresh fish.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. Good to know. My my family we like some cheese grits and uh, yes.
1: yeah yeah we'll do that sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, maybe maybe we'll have an opportunity to eat some grits together sometime. That'd be that'd be a good time. But uh, yeah, I, I appreciate um, you sharing the the long story behind the book that, as you mentioned, you wrote in 2020, um, which is what I would like to discuss with you today uh, from here to equality. So, in the first chapter. You write that the book is a book primarily about the economic divide between black and white Americans, how it came to be, and how it can be eliminated. And I'm quoting you here. Specifically, we contend a suitably designed program of reparations can close the divide. Black reparations can place America squarely on the path to racial equity. You also write that ARC, the acronym that stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure, characterizes the three essential elements of the reparations program that we are advocating. And lastly, you quote Malcolm X who said, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it out all the way, that's not progress. The progress comes from healing the wound that the blow made. They haven't even begun to pull the knife out. They won't even admit the knife is there. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Darity, to comment on the arc of reparations and connect it to Malcolm X's analogy, if you will.
1: Well, I think the reason we were drawn to that analogy is because it makes a distinction between stopping a harm and compensating for the harm. So stopping the harm is the equivalent of pulling the knife out but compensating for the harm is healing the wound and so uh, you know many many people refer to acts of reparations as acts that involve stopping the harm uh, but we think that that's not an accurate description or definition of reparations that reparations has to be focused on the compensatory dimension that is the uh the the, the party that has perpetrated per- per- I'm sorry, the party that has perpetrated the harm has to make a commitment and has to follow through on that commitment to provide redress and restitution to the victimized community. Uh, And so we think that Malcolm X's quotation captures that distinction between uh, bringing about an end to an atrocity or a series of atrocities uh, and compensating the victims for those atrocities that have been inflicted upon them.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I found the analogy helpful and um, relevant to the arc in that, um, you know, to, to acknowledge uh, racial injustice is to admit that the knife is there. To redress, it, it seems to me, is, is like pulling the knife out, but then the seed, the closure, um, is, is the healing. Um, and so all three components, uh, of the, so I think that that's
1: slightly different from the way in which we were reading it, Please. but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, quotation. So it's, it's, it's open to interpretation, mm-hmm. but, uh, we were thinking that, um, the three acts acknowledgement, redress, and closure are all healing the wound, uh, stopping the harms For example, stopping discriminatory practices or uh, bringing about an end to residential segregation or uh, providing equal education, uh, especially uh, desegregating the uh, more advanced classes in the typical school in the United States. Uh, All of those things are, are pulling the knife out but it is the actual act of uh, acknowledging that the harm has taken place that uh, leads to an act of restitution that justifies closure Uh, because by closure we mean uh, a situation or a condition in which the community that has been subjected to the atrocity has agreed with the culpable party that the account is settled. And uh, that account being settled will only be a condition that's maintained if there are no new atrocities, mm-hmm. if there's no recurrence of the harms. Uh, so um, so we, we tend to associate uh, healing the wound exclusively with reparations itself. Uh, while uh, pulling the knife out is the process of stopping uh, continuation of the harms.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that's helpful. And I, I want to comment further on closure and, and we'll do that in, in a subsequent question, I think, but um, you know, you comment on, I think, the difference between restitution and atonement. Um, and, and to generalize or, or comment at a high level, Um, acknowledging that there's not a program imaginable that, that can pay for, fully heal the wounds inflicted by white supremacy on black Americans. Um, but it is possible to imagine a situation in which there was restitution, at least economically, which I think is the focus primarily of, of your work, of your book, to consider, um, the, the economic implications, uh, specifically as it relates to, to things like wealth and income. Um, but if I may um, transition to my next question, which is sort of in that vein, um, you write that wealth or net worth is the most powerful indicator of the ge- intergenerational effects of white supremacy on black economic well-being. However, many Mer- Americans misunderstand the black-white wealth gap. and so there are many negative effects of white supremacy on black Americans. Why is the black white wealth gap the most important effect and what is the cause of it?
1: So the black white wealth gap is the most important effect of white supremacy that we can we can measure uh, on the basis of some type of economic indicator because it captures the the cumulative effects of the atrocities that have taken place across generations—it uh, really is a, a valuable summary measure of the, uh, the 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 way in which these harms have interacted and accumulated over time to produce uh, the inequality that's reflected in this black-white wealth gap. That we experience today. And it's 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 huge. Uh it's uh it in in 2019, the Survey of Consumer Finances from the Federal Reserve Board uh came up with an estimate that the average black household has eight hundred and forty-one thousand dollars less in net worth than the average white household. Uh we estimate that that comes to approximately $350,000 per person. So if you were thinking about a family of four, the gap would be uh, in excess of uh, $1 million. So that's that's a really, really stunning measure uh, of the degree of wealth inequality. And we think it's a consequence of policies that the federal government has conducted over the course of many years since the uh, end of the slave, uh, the end of slavery in the United States. Um, particularly significant is the starting point when uh, uh, in the aftermath of, of the Civil War, the federal government makes a promise to the newly emancipated of 40 acre land grants. And this is a promise that is not kept. At The same time the federal government is giving One and a half million white families, 160 acre land grants in the Western territories as the country completes its colonial settler project. And uh, it's now estimated by Trina uh, William Shanks that. 45 million living white Americans continue to be beneficiaries of those land patents that were provided to the one and a half million white families under the Homestead Act of 1862. Uh, so that for us is the beginning of the uh, the post-slavery wa- racial wealth gap, uh, the failure to make any form of compensation to the newly emancipated while uh, white families are given uh, a substantial asset uh, in the western territories and then subsequent to that we have the period of legal segregation which we refer to somewhat blithely as the jim crow period Uh, and this is a period in which not only did you have uh, a structure of apartheid that was established in the united states but you also had a series of massacres that took place upwards of 100 of them that took place from the end of the Civil War into uh, the 1940s. And uh, these massacres resulted not only in a massive loss of Black lives, also the seizure and appropriation of Black-owned property by the white terrorists. And so this is another way in which the racial wealth gap gets aggravated uh, because uh, uh, black, black property is actually just taken over uh, by, by whites who are engaged in these savage acts. Then uh, in the 20th century, the federal government moves away from asset building via land distribution to asset building via home ownership supports. And the entire process of subsidizing and supporting home ownership or home buying was conducted in a wholly discriminatory fashion to the benefit of white families and to the disadvantage and detriment of black families and so i would include in this range of policies uh, initially the existence of restrictive covenants and then uh, the practice of redlining and then uh, the discriminatory application of the home buying provisions of the gi bill and then uh, there are additional policies that took place that uh, that become manifest in a widening of the racial wealth gap or the sustaining of the racial wealth gap. Uh, this includes the uh, urban renewal process that uh, that that came under the the heading of slum clearance, uh, and you know, of course, uh, James Baldwin famously said that urban renewal should be should be understood as negro removal Uh, and then there was also the introduction of the federal highway system which resulted in the running of freeways through the heart of black business districts across the country destroying them and again uh reinforcing the racial wealth gap so uh so a the racial wealth gap truly captures uh the the uh the effects of american atrocities on black economic well-being and b the uh racial wealth gap is a product of national policies federal government's policies and hence the federal government has the obligation to
0: make redress And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. well, thank you for that that comprehensive summary dr darity and i think you captured that well in your book and as do other authors. I mean, that's not a unique analysis to you, certainly. Um, no, no, it's not. No, and, and so, but it's, it's important. And, and I think that, you know, in my experience, um, becoming aware of the black-white wealth gap, I'm an analyst professionally, and so I look at numbers and, and was struck um, by the extremity of the gap. I think most estimates place it at around 10%. Um, the average black household has approximately 10% of the wealth of the average white household and 50 to 60% of the income. Um, and so the extremity of those um, gaps and the persistence of them over time. And so for me, the question became, why is that? And I think the history that you've outlined, um, you know, tells us pretty clearly why those gaps exist and persist. I'm Denisha Simpson.
2: And I'm Joy McGowan. And And we we are are the co-hosts to the the Resilient Resilient Black Women podcast. podcast. Our podcast is all about demystifying mental health for black women, women of color, and women everywhere.
0: You can learn more about our work with our nonprofit and our podcast
2: by visiting resilientblackwomen.org. You can also listen to our podcast at KUAF.com or subscribe to our podcast on any streaming platform.
0: But to transition to my next question, uh, you write, and you wrote this in 2020, so I would be interested if this has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, but in 2020, you wrote that the climate for acceptance of a reparations program has never been better. Even so, you addressed frequent objections to reparations, and I think there were like 14 of them in the book. But I wanted to ask you to comment on at least the last one, uh, which is there's no way to pay enough to compensate for the evil of slavery. And this gets back a little bit to our conversation about closure and healing and atonement and restitution. Um, but you had an interesting uh, Frederick Douglass quote in there. Um, so I wanted you to comment on really as many objections as you care to, uh, but at least that last one, if, if you will.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the quotation from Frederick Douglass is an acknowledgement that the Horrors of slavery are something that cannot be fully priced out. But at the same time, Frederick Douglass says, uh, "But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it; that you shouldn't try to provide some degree of compensation for the horror." And so, um, so that's that's our that's our big point. Yeah, that it, it's 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 probably impossible to fully measure in a monetary way uh the the harms of harms of slavery or the harms of the other atrocities which are, are in so, to some degree just as relevant to the conditions that confront living black Americans. you know, what happened after slavery was over, it, it, it probably is impossible to put a comprehensive price tag on that degree of oppression. But that doesn't mean that you should not try to engage in a very serious effort to undertake compensation.
0: Mm-hmm. How, how would you assess the climate for acceptance of a reparations program today in 2022?
1: Yeah, so the climate is actually better than any moment, probably since the uh, reconstruction era. Uh, in the year 2000, uh, Michael Dawson and Ravana Popoff did a survey. The, these are a couple of scholars at the University of Chicago. And they conducted a survey on American attitudes towards reparations. And they found at the time that only 4% of white Americans endorsed monetary payments as reparations for uh, for for Black Americans. Uh, by the year 2018, that percentage had risen to about 15. And then uh, by the midpoint of 2021, In the aftermath of the events of 2020 that percentage had risen to closer to 30. Uh, and so that's a very very significant change even if it's not a situation in which a majority of white americans yet endorse uh, reparations Uh, but that's a very dramatic change and it's a, a change that suggests that the percentages are moving in the right direction uh, to make it possible for us to have a, uh, a climate where Congress would adopt a reparations plan. So, uh, so the, the real question is, can we sustain that increase in, uh, in, in white support? Because, uh, white support would be essential for congressional approval. And so, um, So that's that's the big question, but uh, the degree of support that exists in the present moment is is really unprecedented.
0: Mm. I did not know that. That's encouraging. Thirty percent, and up from four percent in twenty in the year two thousand. Did I get that? Yeah. What
1: you frequently will hear is a statistic that says you know something like seventy percent of white Americans are opposed. Mm -hmm but the people who report the statistic in that way don't talk about how that represents a very, very dramatic improvement over a situation in which 96% of white Americans were opposed in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. Um, You also asked if I could talk about some of the other standard objections. And I think one that I'd like to highlight is the claim that some people make that reparations already was paid in the blood of the lives that were lost by white soldiers during the course of the civil war and uh you know malcolm x's quotation is really pertinent here because uh if the soldiers lost their lives in the process of bringing slavery to an end that means that they brought the atrocity to an end that was a question of pulling the knife out, but it does not mean that the folks who were subjected to slavery received compensation, which is the healing of the wound. And in fact, they were promised compensation, as I said, in the form of the forty-acre land grants, but they never received that. So, uh, so, so that's the that's the first part of my is that. Uh, ending an atrocity is not the same thing as providing restitution for the damages of the atrocity. Uh, But there's a second response, which is, uh, we also have to recognize that half of the soldiers who died during the course of the Civil War uh, died for the purposes of preserving slavery. (laughs) They were fighting for the Confederacy. Uh, And so... um, So we we really then have to talk about the white soldiers who lost their lives in the Union cause, Uh, and that leads to a third point, which is it wasn't only white soldiers who lost their lives in the Union cause. In fact, the black soldiers who participated on the Union side actually had higher mortality rates during the course of the war than than the white soldiers, and it's evident. Now that it's unlikely that the uh, union would have won that war without uh, formerly enslaved black people uh, picking up their 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 limited belongings and joining the union army to support the union army. Uh, so this is not just a qu- question of uh, of of whites gifting. Black Americans with liberation from slavery. Uh, black Americans contributed directly to the process of their self-liberation by uh, supporting the Union Army. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I'll note here, as, as we will later, uh, Dr. Darity, that we've purchased a number of copies of your book to, to give away to folks, to our listeners. And so um, I, I say that because I certainly want folks to read the book Um, in the chapter in which you respond to uh, really a a large number of objections, I think, you know, rather, um, rather well. Um, So I'll Uh, note that that now. And
1: and thank you very much for sharing the book with your audience. Uh, I hope that they find it to be uh, helpful. And I hope that they find that there's uh, information there that they, they learn for the first time.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's my pleasure. As I told you earlier, I love to give books away. It's one of my favorite things to do. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that uh, here in our community. So, okay, Dr. Darity, let's transition um, from from theory to practice. Let's talk dollars and cents and nuts and bolts. Um, <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> in the last chapter, you prescribe a program of reparations whose goal is to close the black-white wealth gap. Um, so can you describe the program that you support?
1: Yes, i uh, be glad to. Uh, I think there are four central pillars to the program that uh, is, is described in the final chapter of From Here to Equality. The first is we try to be specific about who should be eligible to receive reparations. And we argue that it's Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States and we offer uh, two, two criteria for uh, establishing eligibility. The first is what we describe as a lineage standard. And the lineage standard has it that an individual must demonstrate that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And then the uh, the second criteria is what we refer to as an identity standard. And this means that for at least 12 years before the enactment of a reparations plan, or before the adoption of a commission to study reparations, an individual would have had to have self-identified as Black, Negro, African American, or Afro-American, uh, and so uh, so the combined uh, the combined criteria lead to uh, lead to a specification of Black Americans whose ancestors were subjected to slavery in the United States as the eligible population. Then the second characteristic of the reparations plan would be uh, a, uh, uh, a, a, a structure of the plan so that you eliminate the racial wealth gap. And this would require a federal expenditure in the vicinity of at least $14 trillion to bridge that disparity in net worth between black and white households and black and white individuals. Uh, The third characteristic is that it is the federal government that should be responsible for uh, meeting the bill. This is for two reasons. Uh, The first is that the federal government is the only entity with the capacity to meet a bill of that magnitude. Uh, The combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States, budgets that they use for all purposes for serving their constituencies, uh, amount to uh, less than four and a half trillion dollars. And so uh, there's no way that the states and localities could actually meet a bill of $14 trillion without... uh, completely removing their commitment to provide their normal services to their to their constituents. Um, but the uh, additional reason why the federal government should pay is because the federal government is in the last instance, the culpable party. It's the federal government that engineered the policies that resulted in the racial wealth differential. And so it's the federal government that has the obligation to uh, to remedy that situation, and then the fourth and final characteristic is that uh, a plan for reparations must prioritize making direct payments to the eligible recipients. Uh, we think it's 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 vital that the recipients of reparations have complete discretion over the use of the funds, just as recipients of reparations in other instances uh, from victim reparations for victimized communities have had full discretion over the use of the funds Uh, and here I would make special note of the uh, of the case of Japanese Americans who received some measure of compensation for the uh, period in which they were subjected to mass incarceration in the United States uh, during World War II and uh, also the example of uh of german reparations payments to the victims of the holocaust Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. well thank you for that dr darity Uh, that summary those four components um man i'm with you i'm for it and i'll say your your book has been formative for me and has has changed my perspective it has helped me see um, the inability of any party other than the federal government to close the black-white wealth gap, which um, you know, for you and I'd say for me too, it is the goal. Um, and so I've been challenged um, by by your work in that respect, um, as I consider um, you know what what we're trying to do locally. And so, with, with that, I want to ask um, one of my last questions. So, uh, you, you've written some some things, some articles subsequent to the book, perhaps prior. Um, that you sent to me that are read, and, and, and in these works, these articles, you express your opposition to what you call piecemeal reparations or so-called reparations programs at the local level um, because they hijack, um, in your words, uh, that congressional federal um, reparations project, which is ultimately necessary. And so my, my question for you, Dr. Darity, and, and I don't know the answer to this, um, but what, if anything, from your perspective, can be done at the local level um, to move our country and communities closer to equality? And and I'll share, you know, honestly, Dr. Doherty, so so I live, um, you know, in a in a red state. And um, if I think about, you know, if I was to lobby my, my current congressional representatives, you know, for reparations, I'm pretty sure I know what they would say. And. And so for me, part of the part of the question is, well, gosh, what what can we do locally in our current political environment? And maybe you would say, well, I don't don't want to presume what you would say, but uh, I want to ask, um, what can we do locally? What should we do locally?
1: Well, let let me start with what's required nationally, which Mm. is uh, (laughs) we need uh, we need a a different Congress, Mm. Uh, so part of this process of uh, of uh, creating congressional support for a reparations plan involves changing who the congressional representatives are. Uh, and that requires a national political movement. Uh, now, what can happen at the local level? Well, I I think it would be great if states and localities were taking up Certain kinds of initiatives that they referred to as racial equity initiatives, as opposed to reparations, and uh, and I think that the primary focus of those efforts should be pulling the knife out—that is, ending the types of discriminatory practices that have been uh, uh, have been have been undertaken at the state and local level. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you think about the state of California, uh, like other locations, there's a long history of the use of eminent domain in an anti-black fashion. Uh, and that's a practice that needs to be stopped. Uh, and so so that's that's one thing that could happen at the state and local level is a focus on the very unique and specific atrocities that have taken place in those arenas and making sure that they stop. Uh, But the other thing that states and localities can do, particularly those that are so inclined to have a favorable view of of reparations, is uh, is to engage in a coalition that would lobby and petition Congress for the policy. This is a harder task for communities that uh, have a certain degree of sympathy for reparations. Because it's it's always easier to put up a project at your local level that you call reparations than engage in the more hard, uh, the more demanding fight to actually uh, get Congress to do the right thing. But we've got to get Congress to do the right thing. Uh, the debt has not been paid for 157 years. Uh, and so it, it's it's uh it's imperative that we not only pressure congress to do the right thing but we make sure that the right thing is the right thing that is to say that we don't settle for piecemeal projects across the country that do not meet the task of eliminating the racial wealth gap
0: is there such a coalition um perhaps in its infancy or or further along in its development today, to your knowledge?
1: So there was a U.S. Conference of Mayors initiative that seemed to be uh, providing the basis for such a movement. Uh, That seems to have petered out, but I think uh, it's something that can be rejuvenated. I also think that, uh, you know, there's a number of uh, of communities of faith uh, especially the episcopalians in particular who are uh openly and strongly committed to the reparations project and uh it might be possible to build a coalition of uh of of like-minded groups and organizations around them uh but to be frank uh you know apart from efforts within the black community like uh uh what's it the national Afri- african american slave descendants organization uh apart from activities like that uh there's no uh there's no really systematized effort to produce what i would call pure reparations uh we have organizations that are ostensibly reparations advocates like uh, NARC and Encobra, but the kind of reparations plan that they have in mind is not consistent with the four pillars that I talked about earlier. Uh, so that that's another danger: is uh, is is reparations advocates who are not really advocating for for reparations. <laughs> uh, so we we have to uh, we have to build that movement because I don't think that the organizational infrastructure exists yet.
0: Mm-hmm. One other question in that vein. In previous episodes of the podcast, we've alluded to James Foreman and the Black Manifesto. Um, and his perspective, as I understand it, um, the, the, the party from whom he was demanding reparations was the church. It was white churches and, and synagogues too, I believe. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, based on what you shared thus far, that that you might applaud, Foreman in, in in one sense, but but criticize him in another, and say that ultimately his manifesto was inconsistent with your four pillars. Um, is that yeah yeah? Essentially um,
1: correct. I, I I certainly applaud uh, Foreman's fortitude and his advocacy of reparations, but again, this is a case where the advocate is not is not pursuing what I would view as pure reparations, although. At the point at which Foreman did that, uh the ideas that we're talking about uh in the present in the present moment have have not have were not were not available to him. That 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 was not a conversation that had been held yet. But uh but yeah, where I where I depart from Foreman is from his uh his his approaching uh these organizations to engage in reparations as a kind of a charitable act. Uh, they don't have the resources that would be adequate for a elimination of the racial wealth gap. And, uh, and whatever they did, uh, uh, you know, for example, the Georgetown University priest selling 272 people into the deep South for the purposes of preserving their university. Whatever they did, for the most part, happened under the laws of the United States. That is to say, these practices were immoral, but for the most part, they were legal. And so the question has to be raised as to which entity is responsible for the legality of these atrocities, and it's the federal government. And so, once again, it's the federal government that has to be designated as the culpable party.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Doctor Darity, I could ask you a hundred more questions, but I want to respect your time <laughs> and uh, that of our listeners. Although they could probably handle a hundred more questions as well, if they're like me. But um, so, so why don't I? I'll thank you for your time today, Doctor Darity, and for being a friend and a teacher to me. Um, Do you have any last words for our audience today?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, I would like our audience to uh, think very carefully about ways in which they can contribute to the development of the coalition that's going to be needed to to make this happen, to make this happen in the right way. Um, And, uh, you know, if there's if there are any individuals or any organizations out there that are committed to pure reparations, that want to serve as an anchor for building the coalition that's required, uh, you know by all means, please, please do that.
0: So we wanted to spend a few minutes discussing what we heard from Dr. Darity and what we hope for Northwest Arkansas generally and the church in Northwest Arkansas specifically. So Dustin, I think you went first last month, so I'll go first this month.
2: All right.
0: Um, So Dr. Darity reminded me of two truths and a lie, okay? So the first truth is that reconciliation, me being friends with you, is not sufficient to get us from here to equality, because it will not close the black-white wealth gap, and it will not return truth, wealth, or power, to use Quan and Thompson's language. So, Dustin, if we want to close the black-white wealth gap, if we want to return truth, wealth, and power, then we need more than reconciliation. We need reparations. So that's the the first truth that Dr. Darity reminded me of. The second is that Reparations is really not a ministry of mercy, but of justice because the black-white wealth gap was opened by injustice. And so if we want to close the black-white wealth gap, then then we need to confess that we, people like me, white Christian people, have done injustice. And, and we need to repent. We need to do justice. and And this is important because in my reading about in my experience with white Christian people like me and in previous podcast episodes, we've learned uh, that we tend to believe that reconciliation, me being friends with you, is both sufficient and, and really a ministry of mercy. Um, but this is a lie, it's, it's not true. So, so that's what I heard, that's what Dr. Darity reminded me of. Um, Dustin, what about you? What did you hear?
2: Yeah, I really appreciate uh, that visual of um, the illustration of two truths and a lie that you gave. I think that's, that's a good way to approach it. Uh, the thing that really stands out to me is I really think about the depth and breadth of what is old. And, uh, and similarly to, the, uh, to what you talked about of people approaching reparations as a type of uh, mercy ministry, a mercy work. Uh, really misses uh, the depth of what has been stolen and what has been taken away from black people uh, over the course of our history in this land. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it is talked about as if it's just an emotional uh, theft, uh, and what is the the sense of what is old is not tangible, mm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's not something that can be measured or grasped. When in reality, to a, an extent, it definitely can be. Yes. Right? When we talk about generations, hundreds of years of death of wages, right? It, but it doesn't stop. And the beautiful thing that he argues um, in his book and in his interview is that it doesn't stop at slavery. That's right. Right? We have the slavery of post-Civil War reconstruction. We have the slavery of Jim Crow, right, and all of the things that lead up into even mass incarceration in America and that bring us to this very moment Mm -hmm. of things that have exacerbated, right, what can be tangibly seen in the black-white wealth gap. And I think the major root of that is what we're battling in the current day and time is the, the battle over education mm-hmm. and what truths are willing to tell. Mm-hmm. The reason people don't know what was stolen and what was taken away and what is old is because we're not allowed to have those conversations. We're not allowed to talk about those things. I was just uh, looking at Texas legislation and how, Uh, They've even, uh, you know, outlawed uh, writings by Dr. King and have made King's writings illegal and Frederick Douglass's writings illegal, right, and in certain school districts. And that is a major part of the problem, Mm -hmm. right? How do we quantify what we are not allowed to learn about, right? How do we... uh, repair what we are not allowed to see and understand right and so we can keep the conversation in this kind of theoretical thing because we prevent people from getting to a place to where they can actually see the numbers and figures Mm -hmm. right where they can see the actions and the legislation and all of the things that actually contributed to what we have in the present moment right where we are it did not come in a vacuum that's right it was intentionally crafted. There were intentional behaviors. There was an intentional framework and worldview behind all of those things. And it was not by accident that we are where we are. And it really is important for us to do the work to actually say, no, this is real. It's similar to if you don't pay your your light bill for five years. You don't owe an imaginary debt to the electric company. Mm-hmm. When they pursue it in court, there's dollars in figure. There's a real debt owed, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and very much in the same vein, if we look over the course of history of black people in America and the theft that has happened, if we talk about not just slavery, if we talk about land that was stolen, right? if we talk about lives that are taken, if we talk about um, explicit, intentional economic exploitation, there is a major bill that is Mm old that we do not want to acknowledge. And we want to pretend like it's not real. And then we want to get caught up in conversations about, uh, you know, how do we do it and how do we make sure. Like, those conversations are easily resolved. Mm -hmm. But they only go as far as to Make it seem like uh, the resolving the reparations issue um is an impossible task, so we should not even pursue it or talk about it. and that that's not true at all. And I think Dr. Derity in his book and in the, in the interview makes that clear that is quite possible, mm-hmm. right, to trace the economic impact that has to the benefit of whites and to um, the harm of black people um, is traceable, and we can't get the full number, right? The number that we'll actually arrive on is probably much less than it should be. But you definitely can come up with figures that um, can point to what is old historically to black people. And I think that's the most important thing, that this is not just— uh, uh a theoretical argument this is not just an emotional argument but this is grounded in reality of real of real figures of real data of real impact that has caused real uh, harm to where there are groups who are being perpetually benefited and harmed right by that h- historical legacy
0: mm-hmm. yeah i agree i appreciate those comments dustin and and to to comment on them briefly math and history man like I think that if if we reflect on the math um, the the black white wealth gap means that that people in my group white Americans have ten times the wealth of people in your group on average
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and to your point one one way to say that is that people in your group have one tenth and have been have been hurt. Mm-hmm. The other way to say that is people in my group have 10 times and have been have been helped. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, why? Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the history is the answer. The history explains the math. We, we have a history of racial injustice, as Brian Stevenson says, in our country, from slavery to Jim Crow to new Jim Crow. and, and, that, that is true here now in Washington County. I, I don't have the, the math as to the black-white wealth gap, but the Ideals Institute at the University of Arkansas reports um, that in recent years, the, the black-white income gap in Washington County is, is 50%. So for every dollar of, of income, not wealth, um, that white households have in Washington County, Arkansas, black households have 50 cents to that dollar. And again, like that, the history explains the math here and now. Mm-hmm. So this is not a problem of some other time and place. It's a problem here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like if we reflect on that, I, I think if we're honest, we have to conclude that reconciliation, while important, me being friends with you is good. It's not. It's not sufficient. It's not going to get us from here to equality. We have to do more. Hi friends, Dustin and I want to invite you to attend the next The R Word event.
2: The R Word events help us continue the conversation started on the podcast. On Saturday, October 28th, we will host a viewing and discussion of the film, The Big Payback, which is about reparations.
0: Let's listen to a clip about the film. Reparations for people of African descent is long overdue. We don't want a piece of freedom.
1: We want the whole package. The city of Evanston has pledged to give To black residents.
2: This is American history.
1: We want cash payment. Give us what we're due. I don't know why they would be given more status than any other group of people. It was a crime, but no one paid the price.
2: The event will be on Saturday, October 28th at 2 p.m. in the Walker Room at the Fayetteville Public Library. You can RSVP on our website, reparationsnownwa.com, but you don't have to RSVP to attend the event.
0: We hope to see you there. Yeah,
1: and, and,
2: and I think this is why it's very important to actually do the history and the math together. All mm-hmm. Right, because if you just do the math, What you can do is gaslight people into saying that um, the reason that black people are in the position that they're in is because of moral failure and a lack of um, fiscal responsibility. That's right. Right. When that's not the case, if you track when you bring up the history, you can track the reality Mm -hmm. that whenever black people try to get a leg up economically. Right, that white people were there to cut them off at the knees, mm-hmm. right, and to thwart all of those attempts, right, and we know some of the most famous, right, uh, examples of that. If we talk about um, what happens in Tulsa and Black Wall Street, what happens in New York, right, and where you know currently Central Park is, and all there's examples upon examples of that. But if we even talk about you know legislation that was passed that was supposed to um, uh, give black people the opportunity to participate in um, the economy in an equitable way, right? Like the Civil Rights Act of 1865, mm-hmm. right? Which like, hey, we can't just free black people; they need to be able to participate in the economy, right? They need to be able to get access to contracts and to be able to um, participate in the same way that white people are able to participate. If that, if that doesn't happen, right? Are they, they? might be physically free, but they're not economically free. Mm-hmm. And right, we even and we see that battle still happening in the present, right? A, a major, you know, case that people haven't paid attention to over the last couple couple of years is Byron, you know, uh, Long, who is, uh, who was suing, uh, uh, Comcast and other big um, television um, juggernauts. And over the Civil Rights Act of 1865, saying black people aren't able to get, you know, uh, a fair share mm. in um, the the economy and the contracts and these deals that are being made backdoor. And he lost that case, mm. right, on the basic premise of how do you prove that um, someone is— being completely racist in their motivations, right? And and uh, Byra Allen basically, he says it was described to him like this: He said, "If it it can be ninety nine percent racist mm-hmm. and one percent that I don't like your shoes, mm-hmm. right? And it doesn't meet the criteria, right? And those are the same kind of battles that are happening, right? For um." Black people who are trying to have equity, equi- equity in the marketplace, and so we see even in the present, like trying to carve out uh, your place of belonging in the American economy is an uphill battle, right? And if this is the, if these are the kind of struggles that are happening in the present, right? What are the, the generational, gener- generational past battles that have occurred over economics? right and equity in those spaces and so it is a it is a major major um gap that has in, been intentionally created and it something that needs, needs to be done about it and you know darity speaks to that very well
0: mm-hmm. yeah i agree well, we could probably talk more about what we heard um but what if we transition to what we hope you want to go first on this one
2: Yeah, I think what I hope is that people would actually value what real healing is Um, and not do the work of patronizing black people as some sort of charity case that what we really need is relationships with white people, right, in order for us to become... More like them mm-hmm. Because that's really what it is mm-hmm. right? When you talk like that Again what you're, what you're communicating Is that black people have a moral issue right? That black people have uh, An education issue That black people have a responsibility issue That can be Improved by proximity to whites right? Who have it together mm-hmm. right? And not this Historical lineage of harm That has caused What exists to be And so if I really value healing, I will talk about the harm and how do we make the harm right. Do you really value that? Right. But what I tend to see is uh, white people more so uh, focused on how do I Uh, alleviate guilt Mm -hmm. and remove the burden from my own conscience so that I can go back on functioning and doing what I was doing before, which is why there's always the conversation with white people when we get into this space of when have we done enough. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's not the conversation of what does flourishing look like. What does health look like? What does healing look like? But when have I crossed the threshold of having done enough to opt back out and go back to my life as it was? Mm-hmm. right? And we, we can never get to where we need to get to when that's the posture. And so it is important for people who are seeking to participate in this work to be actually committed to health, to healing, to wholeness. Over my own personal feelings of guilt and shame, being uh, being cured or alleviated, or um, the burden being lifted off of me. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, who are the people who are being perpetually harmed here? Mm-hmm. Right? And how do I make that right? And so that's 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 really what I want to be able to see. That's what I. I sense that there's a lack of. And even the people who are well-meaning, who are participating in the work, far too many uh, I have experienced are in that category of just not wanting to feel the, the guilt and shame of the historical reality. And so are just trying to do enough to, you know, put some ointment, some balm on that for themselves versus actually creating some transformational change in the historical lineage of white supremacy and and, and racism in this this country.
0: I agree. I share that hope, and I think that's a good follow-up from last month's episode with Dr. Jones and talking about cheap grace, true repentance um, that leads to repair, um, and that goes through guilt and shame. Um, I agree that we have to face those things if there's any hope of healing for any of us. Um so I share those hopes. Um I think too, Dustin, um one of one of my hopes is about something that I've alluded to previously on on the podcast, uh, which is what we've called the Zacchaeus Fund. And um you know, one of my hopes is that white people in churches in Northwest Arkansas will work with what we're calling the Zacchaeus Foundation, which is a new nonprofit that you and I and, and others are starting, and, and we'll share more about the foundation later, but for now, I wanna say that our vision is is really racial healing, and our mission is reparations of truth, wealth, and power, and that um, we want to repair truth by educating white people um, about racial injustice, wealth by investing in black nonprofits and power by empowering black people to decide who receives funds. Um, So again, we'll share more about how white people in churches can work with us soon. Um, But for today, I I did wanna mention that again, um, because I I do hope that white people in churches uh, will practice reparations in this way and that we as a community can um, walk the talk um, relative to, to reparations. Dustin, any last words from you today? I have
2: a last thought. I think it's in relation to our local context that is that is applicable more broadly to, which is I think the need to re- repent and re- release of like these the idols of elitism that uh, are so prevalent in our community. Um, when you, uh, Fayetteville, Northwest Arkansas, likes to. You know, uh, hang its hat on being this kind of progressive community, but even in the way that it communicates itself, in that it's an elitist um, language and posturing. To where we, when you really get into the to the T for this community, you you quickly sense that this is uh, um, uh, who's in and who's out type of community right and and we we talk about that extends to where you live where your kids go to school all those kinds of things to where we communicate who's a part of us and who's not a part of us who's a part of the real community right even get that sense of like you know here in Fayetteville who's a part of the historical you know Fayetteville and who's a part of the new like all those kinds of things right and so you know you have people Oh, I want my my kids to live on a the east side of Fayetteville so their kids can go to to Root, and you know that's one A, and then one B, you can go to you know Butterfield or something like that. And mm-hmm. Those are the schools that you really want, but you don't want to be moving west and have your kid in Asbell and Walker, and you know, and, and these other schools, you know, and and there's this real sense of that uh, that is real prevalent here, and we talk about inclusivity. Right? But we don't really mean that. We mean we don't mean that in our actual places of abiding and belonging. right? We still want my kids to go to school with all white, wealthy kids mm-hmm. so that they can network and grow up in that social circle that's going to perpetuate their economic benefit and their el- el- elitist connections for the rest of their life. And so even when we talk about this idea of Oh, you know, reconciliation being relational. Even, they don't, nobody really believes that. Because you want to be able to have places where you come, you touch base with people, and then you go back into your leader circles. Like, you go back to your schools, you go back to your neighborhoods, you go back to, nobody wants to fully integrate. And that's not even talking about race, that's just talking about class there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, like, even for a place like Northwest Arkansas that wants to believe itself to be progressive, to really, I hope that they can see the, the blind spots in who they actively are, right, in practice and practice and be better, mm-hmm. be truly inclusive, mm-hmm. yeah, be holistically who they claim on paper that they are.
0: Amen. Amen, Dustin. I agree. May we be better. Well, brother, that's all for today's episode. Um, Listeners, y'all come back for an interview with Dr. Michael Rhodes next month and go to our website, com to get more information about the R-Word events, like our community viewing and discussion about the film The Big Payback this fall. Thanks.